Hey, hello, welcome, uh, welcome guests, welcome friends to another yes. exciting episode of Untold Riches. We're at episode 19 now, Richard. 19. Dude, 19. That is, I saw that up in the little ticker at the uh -huh. top, and I went, there's no way we've done 19 of these. They 19. Say, statistically, if you get through episode like 15, then you've made it in the podcasting world. So yes. I fully expect to start getting endorsements. I hope that we start getting paid for all of this. Uh, and if we don't, I'm going to continue to do it because I just absolutely love it. I love our dumb show so much. It's so fun. So a little bit about our next guest, Elsie Greenwood. Uh, well, that's a call sign. Charles Chuck Greenwood. Uh, I usually call him Viper. Uh, is my best friend in the whole world's dad. And I've known him for about 20 years at this point. We've known each other since I was basically a child. Uh, he is a all-around awesome guy. He tells a great story. Uh, he's got babies and grandbabies to talk about. He's got an illustrious, and I mean that legitimately, career as a fucking fighter pilot. <laughs> My dude is awesome. He's a great guy. Uh, guy's a big, generous heart. I, I can't tell you how many countless Christmas parties and Halloween parties and everything else we've been to at his house. His wife, Pat, is the sweetest lady in the world. Uh, my sons call their grandmother Gigi, but Pat Greenwood was the first Gigi in my heart for sure, uh, mm -hmm. years before. So uh, uh, without much further ado, I'd love to introduce our audience to uh, Chuck L.C. Greenwood. Welcome, Chuck. Hey. Welcome, welcome. Happy to be here. I've never done one of these before, so I'm looking forward to this. That's going to be a good time. Oh, it is a good time. It's We always goof off and, and have a pretty pretty fun time. So kind of to get us kicked off, uh, something I've always kind of wondered. I know you're from, is it Texas, right? You're from Texas. I know your wife's from Texas. Uh, we're both from Texas. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, she claims that I'm not from Texas because uh, I moved away after I was born. But uh, <laughs> I'm from Brownwood, Texas originally, and, and I came back to Texas uh, for partial junior high and high school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, what do you identify as in your heart? Where would you say you're from? Uh, a Texan and a uh, uh, St. Louis, Missourian and a uh, Washington, actually Northern Virginian, since mm -hmm. we've lived here most of our lives now. But uh, we've moved around uh, at least 15 locations uh, in my uh, Air Force career. And so uh, we're worldly, to say the least. Well, that Love a lot awesome. of places. Oh, yeah, they've been everywhere, man. I have too many hometowns. Too many hometowns. I and it's 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 always so surprising to me because I uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia and I was like born went to the house that I grew up in and moved out of it when I was twenty. Like literally, like that's that same house. And then everybody that I knew, all of my friends were in the military. Well, their parents were in the military, and they would just be like, I'd have a best friend for three years, and then they'd move away. And mm -hmm. so I've been on the other side of that coin where I just we didn't go anywhere or do anything. And so I can't ever, it's always, it's always crazy to think about how different life would have been moving around a bunch if my parents had been in the military. But, you know, not, not everybody, I guess, in the military ends up moving around as much, but uh, we did. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of that was probably because of the jobs and everything else we got the opportunity to get. And, uh, but I wanted to move around. And uh, as it turned out, uh, we certainly got that opportunity. So we can talk about that a little bit later. I'm sure we'll blend yeah. that in during this whole session somewhere. For sure. So what was that early light, uh, life like? You said you were born in Texas and you moved soon thereafter. Where'd you go to? And, and what was your family life like? Siblings, mom and dad? How was that like growing up? All right. So uh, to 
keep it short. Yeah. So uh, certainly born in Texas. I don't remember any of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a little guy named Shorty the Jew. And so I had my, uh, my, when I was born, I had uh, three total blood transfusions. So I almost died. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And my mother had a reaction to, you know, blood, uh, different bloods between my father and mother and blood types. And so I almost died. We found this guy in Brown. Somebody found this guy in Brownwood, Texas named Shorty the Jew. I don't know anything about him. I don't know his last name. Don't know his real name, but he <laughs> saved my life. So no they tried three or four different ones. It didn't work. Finally, they came up with his blood and that worked like a champ. No kidding. So anyway, from uh, from there, you know, from Texas, we moved around. We moved up to Missouri and then uh, back down to Texas and back up to Missouri. I lived in St. Louis, really, from kindergarten all the way through ninth grade, almost ninth grade. And so uh, I have a lot of friends in St. Louis, that area, in one of the suburbs. Uh, but uh, uh, my parents got divorced around that time frame. And I, we moved down to Odessa, Texas with my mother. And we were staying with our with my uh, grandmother down there. And so uh, I had ninth, most of my ninth grade year, 10th and 11th grade year, were all in Odessa, Texas. So you know, that kind of brings up Odessa, Texas. Is there, that rings a bell somewhere in a football world. Uh, Odessa Permian, uh, Mojo, Panthers, Friday Night Lights. That's oh. my high school. So no uh, kidding. that's wow. the primary high school. And so uh, we won state. It would, it would have been my senior year, but I moved away. And my mother wanted to go out to California. And uh, my dad was up in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone up to this, uh, Michigan during the summers. I knew people up there. So I didn't want to go to California where I didn't know anybody. So I moved up to Michigan to finish my, uh, to, for my senior year in high school. Mm -hmm. And so uh, played football up there and, and then uh, tried to get a scholarship from that point uh, and then uh, went on from there. So those are the kind of hometowns. That's a short, quick and dirty. Played football from the time I was second grade on uh, and then other sports as well. But uh, that'll be part of something else we'll probably get in the conversation about. Yeah. What, so, uh, what position did you play and what is the most memorable play that you had during your football years? <laughs> Good one. Well, that's that's hard to say. I, I, there's lots of different memorable uh, plays I've had. Uh, when I was a kid, I think one of the most memorable ones was uh, uh, I was playing offensive end, and uh, my uh, the running back was running to the right, and he changed directions, and he was coming back around to the left, and I was playing left end. Mm -hmm. So there was a guy getting ready to uh, that was coming in to to block him, but it was a rainy day, and there's tons of mud all over the place, mud puddles. And I aimed for the perfect, the largest mud puddle, did the perfect cross body block into the mud. It was absolutely awesome. This kid <laughs> went down. We got sloshed. Running back made some yards, and uh, it's a great memory. So I tell my kids that, hey, football is not a, it's not a uh, clean sport. You want to get as dirty as you possibly can. Uh, so that's that's part of it. But uh, uh, through the years, uh, I think in Odessa particularly. Uh, they were certainly focused on, on football, mm -hmm. but not just football, it was other sports. If you watch Friday Night Lights, you know, it's a cool story, but it sounds like everybody's all focused on football. There's, they are focused on football, but there's other sports as well, and they really get involved or get into extracurricular activities. You know, so the school, the whole town supports uh, students that participate in extracurricular activities, and that's an important part uh, mm -hmm. that I push to our kids, both uh, John, Eric, and Ryan. And so uh, uh, they got involved in lots of things. And so 
it's not just about the academics you get in school. Uh, the uh, extracurricular activities is great. I wish that they had had the same environment that I had mm -hmm. in Odessa in that regard, where the whole town shows up to your games yeah. or to your events. You know, whether it be football, whether it be basketball, uh, you pack the stadium. Uh, we had a football stadium. You'd get twenty to twenty-five thousand people coming out to a football game, high school game. Mm -hmm. You know, so you don't have that here in Woodbridge. And I wish they did, but uh, they don't. And so, uh, and maybe it's because it's a small town, and that's mm -hmm. the only thing going on. But uh, that's the kind of environment that I grew up with. Uh, and I got to Michigan, and and uh, I had a great coach up there, a lot of great teammates. We were a much smaller team. And mm -hmm. in, uh, in Odessa, my gosh, you know, I think our front uh, front line on offense and defense probably averaged about two thirty five or two forty. And in Michigan, it was a much smaller team. And uh, I had played just about every position you could play from second grade on. And so uh, uh, I was pretty strong at that time. And mm -hmm. so because we're a small team, they wanted me to play. I was playing defensive end, offensive end to start with. And uh, the coach wanted to move me to defensive tackle. And I thought, <laughs> defensive tackle? I'll never get a scholarship at defensive tackle. I'm not big enough. Right. So, uh, but, you know, coach wants you to move there and it's part of the team. Mm -hmm. So I moved the defensive tackle and uh, I knew I wasn't going to get a scholarship there. I was going to have to play another position somehow. And so uh, one of my goals was exactly that. My brother and sister had gone to junior colleges and I didn't want to stay in the local area and go to junior college. I wanted to get a uh, I wanted to get a scholarship division mm -hmm. one. And I wanted to play division one football. Mm -hmm. So those were my goals. And so uh, I got some small college offers. I was, uh, uh, I got awards within the conference that I was in, but it was not a very big one mm -hmm. uh, as defensive tackle. And so right. again, I wasn't going to get scholarship there. So uh, <laughs> the small schools that made offers were great, but around that, my senior year, my dad hit me up with, "Hey, what do you think about one of the service academies?" And I thought. Phew service academies uh you gotta be smart to get into those places <laughs> and so uh i never really considered myself smart uh and so i knew i studied a lot and so and i got decent grades i had like a three two three two five maybe a three three uh gpa and so uh, i hit up some of my teachers and my football coach at school and they said oh yeah perfect oh you'd be great at it and i thought well hell maybe i have a chance to get in yeah so i applied and actually i looked at their brochures and uh first and they're playing division one schools and they pay your way uh, scholarship uh, scholarship <laughs> one and and uh, they play division one school so if I can just get in I'll make that football team and I'll be able to do what I wanted to do so uh, uh, I applied uh, I got uh, nominated for uh, several different uh, service academies but when it came down all the paperwork and everything else my mm -hmm. SATs were not high enough in math and English oh and no so, uh, you had to have a certain standard, particularly my English scores were low. My math <laughs> scores were decent. My English ones were low. So they gave me an application to a prep school. And I thought, the Air Force Academy prep school, uh, what exactly is that? So I looked at that brochure, and you're playing all the Division One JD teams, and they're paying your way. So I thought, scholarship, and you're, it's Division One football. Yeah. If I just graduate from the prep school, I'll end up going to the Air Force Academy. So uh, I applied for that. I got it. And so I got into the Air Force Academy that way and uh, then struggled with classes and worked really hard to make grades. But I got to play Division One football and uh, for four years and really enjoyed it. 
And so uh, defensive tackle. No, no. So I, I changed to, I changed to, I started out defensive end. And they said, no, uh, based on what you do and how you do it, we want to move you to like a monster man position, uh, rover back position. So at the time their offense and defense, you know, were kind of, you know, their scheme they had, uh, they had an extra man. It was a monster man. And so they wanted me playing that position. So I could, I could call the defenses or call, call the offense of the, I'm sorry, the defenses based on what the offense came out in and run blitzes. I could run the blitzes. I could play, I played linebacker. I played cornerback. I played safety at different times, depending on you know, what we were doing in the defense. So I could basically play anywhere that I needed to play. Uh, and it was, it was the best position I've ever done. And so because of, uh, I think because I started playing football in second grade, mm -hmm. it came natural and it was great. And so uh, uh, you get in on most of the tackles. You, yeah, you, it was, it was uh, really nice. So the most uh, impressive part is that this is all the way back when they still play with leather helmets. So no, <laughs> no, 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 no. So uh, yeah, or or I, I wouldn't have been able to talk at this particular point. I was gonna say right now. Yeah, so many hits, you know, from second grade on that uh, yeah, I don't think any I'm, good any good college stories or prep prep school stories. Uh, you steal a mascot, you you bed the prom queen, anything like that. Oh my gosh, yes, you know. So uh, <laughs> there's some good ones in there. I'll have to think of one here. Did you ever play against anyone that ended up being like a standout and you were just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So uh, here it was my uh, sophomore year. And so uh, I was hoping, you know, I was hoping to make varsity and I didn't make varsity my sophomore year. It didn't happen until my junior year. But sophomore year, I didn't get the suit out with the varsity. I'm sitting on the sidelines and we're going to play uh, Notre Dame. And we're playing at the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And so. Uh, we are ahead 30 to 10 with 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. You know, you're up there at 6,000 foot high altitude, right? Mm -hmm. So these guys were struggling and everything else and we were kicking their butts. All right. So, uh, <laughs> it was an awesome thing. You know, here's air force Academy, uh, beating Notre Dame. Yeah. And they bring out this, this sophomore quarterback and <laughs> he throws three touchdowns. And they beat us 31 to 30. Holy right. shit. And so, uh, uh, but anyway, <laughs> so we almost beat Notre Dame was a big thing. And uh, the guy's name was Joe Montana. No way. Oh, yeah. No way. I got, I got to watch Joe Montana from the sidelines. Um, you're, yeah. you're not the only great football player to get his ass kicked by Joe Montana, man. That's good company <laughs> right there. If you're going to lose big, that's that's exciting. The flip side of that story is I came in as a sophomore. I'm Joe Montana, and I made my bones and then went on and, and was one of the best of all well, time. That's crazy. This was the first time he got to come in like this, you're and wild. this was the start of his uh, comeback kid you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, mantra. And he came back on us. Uh, we were the first ones where he did the comeback on. And, oh my uh, gosh! It was, it was. We should have still won that game, but we don't. We lost. We had. If you'd been in, if you'd been in there, you would have won. That's right. what. That's yeah. what I'm it, it, absolutely. Somehow or another. Somehow or another, I would have tackled him. And, that's right. Uh, picked him off. Career-ending injury. That's right. I would have picked him off. <laughs> oh man, that is awesome. Now you so got to know that at the time, you know, we had a. <laughs> We had Ben Martin as a coach, all right? Mm -hmm. So I had been, from second grade on, I've been on winning football teams almost my whole life, all right? Mm -hmm. Even through high school. You know, we won our conference even in Michigan. It was a small conference. But in Texas, they won state when I wasn't there. So I missed mm -hmm. that opportunity 
but yeah. I did, uh, we did win conference my senior year in Michigan. So I get to the Air Force Academy and I'm getting to play all these teams, your JV teams from the prep school and then get to go. Uh, so it's an extra year of football. It's like being redshirted the way I looked at it. Uh, and so, uh, but uh, uh, we had a coach named Ben Martin. And so you always have different cheers and he used a kind of pro style offense and we weren't as big as other colleges mm-hmm. and it really didn't work so well. All right. So uh, we were losing, we had a lo- huge losing record for uh, multiple years before I got there. And then certainly the year I was there with Ben and you'd hear the crowd go, give them hell, Ben, give them hell, Ben. Oh, hell, give them Ben. You know, so uh, <laughs> yeah. that was the, uh, that was the standard uh, uh, cry from, from a lot of the cadets uh, as well. So, uh, but he left. We had other coaches come in, and we changed our entire offense and defense. And you see it today. It's it's really one of the uh, great, one of the best rushing offenses in uh, college football. So they'll usually lead the uh, college uh, college division one fo- or I'm sorry division, I guess the, the higher end division uh, division one football in rushing. So oh, wow. uh, and all that really mattered was leveraging the expertise of the folks that were there. Mm-hmm. And so you think about pro style needed big people to play on the line and so forth. And we didn't have those big guys. Mm-hmm. When you come in with an option and triple option and other options and, and, and different things like that, different things like that, you really look for quickness and speed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I loved football from uh, second grade on. I played 15 years of football. I've coached about 10 years of different football. I've mm-hmm. coached John Eric and Ryan in football. And so, uh, uh, but the key to success as a coach is looking at the players you have, figuring out where they go so you can maximize their expertise. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't just fit them into your scheme and make them do what you think you ought to do or what you want to do. You really have to look at the talent and put them in the best position to win. And so uh, I look at that, that lesson from football really applies to an awful lot of things as well, whether it be yeah. in work environment, leadership and everything else. You want to put your people in the best position to win, to be successful, and then you'll be successful. That so, really uh, resonated with me as yeah. a coach who I coach, you know, pro- professionals. Um, and you're 100 percent right. A lot of times people will ask me questions like, you know, what's your coaching philosophy? And sure, there's underlying core values and and, and ways that I approach the process. But it's almost always uh, customer unique to that individual person's talents. Right. Trying to identify where are their strengths and build a strategy around that as opposed to going, this is the thing that works. You have to do it. And it may end up be become becoming more aligned with their weaknesses and it ends up not serving them well. So that's, I used to use, as you were describing that in my head, I was like, that's mm-hmm. so awesome to hear. Yeah. And so do you feel like, go ahead. Do you feel like that informed your eventual command style when the time came for you to be in a leadership position in the military? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a team aspect, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, uh, it's not an individual piece. It's not about you. It's about the team. You mm-hmm. got to figure out who's best and how they, how they work, how they're going to be successful. And you put them in the best position to win or to uh, succeed. Uh, so let me tell one more quick story. This is, about, this is about John Eric. All right. So okay. uh, we're, we're in Heidelberg. It was one of our 15 different moves we made. And uh, he's playing football for the second time. And I get asked to help coach because there's nobody else to coach. They had the coach that was there, got, uh, had an assignment, short notice assignment. He has to move away. Well, I'm a, I'm a group commander and I've got, you know, 
squadrons and debts spread around Germany and Italy that I've got to take care of, but I want to do this on the side because this is an opportunity to help coach John Eric in high school. And so uh, he was on the JV team at the time and they needed another JV coach. They had a teacher, but he couldn't coach. But the way DOD works overseas, particularly, you have to have a teacher uh, at the school with you uh, as a sponsor, mm -hmm. and then you can have somebody come in and coach. So they asked me to come in and coach. And so it was so much fun. And so we're in, we're in the homecoming game, and John Eric is playing center, all right? So he can snap the ball, and it absolutely hurts your hands, all right? So that's how he figured out, I want him to play center. So he could snap the ball really well, but he could also block and everything else. Uh, well, we had a great offense. We ended up going undefeated. Uh, we were we won our won our entire league. But when it comes down to it, homecoming game is pretty important, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got all your school out there. You've got people, friends. Everybody's going to be at that particular game, and they're going to watch this thing. So uh, we're ahead, and we get into we're going into the third quarter, and so are uh, near the end of the third quarter. And so one of the guys on the team gets hurt on the other team. So there's a timeout. So I pulled John Eric off the field and I had a ref referee with me. And I said, Hey, can we do this? And uh, it was basically my interpretation of how to do the fumble ruski. Mm -hmm. So oh. I had John Eric practice it with our quarterback, just snapping it two or three times. And he would keep the bring, bring the ball back in underneath his uh, stomach and still uh, stayed down on the, or near the ground. And then he would get up and he would start running. And so uh, we had never practiced it before. We just talked about it, and then we just practiced snapping it. So the very next play, after we get out there, uh, we're on like the 42-yard line, their 42-yard line. John Eric snaps the ball and then pulls it back in. He's standing down in, in a hunched-over position. Quarterback fakes like he has it, and he runs around the left end. Their defense runs around the left end with him. John Eric takes about two or three steps and then comes up like this. And he's looking every which direction and he starts hauling ass <laughs> he's no kidding. running as fast as he can. He's not the fastest guy <laughs> he starts running as fast as he can. He goes right by the safeties. And one of them turns around and realizes he has the ball and he starts chasing him. Couldn't catch him. He made the end zone 42 yard touchdown in his homecoming game. He was a hero. Damn. Oh, yeah, that's so I never heard that story. John is the slowest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen him run in his flip-flops. Well, for me, as a dad, that yes. was one of my highlights. That's it's amazing. About me. It's about him and yes. the fact that he was able to score a touchdown in the homecoming game. As uh, a center. As a center. <laughs> as a center. With a, yeah. with a quick play, with a cool, like, old-school trick play. God, that's awesome. I am going to get him to tell me that story from his perspective. That is so cool. That's oh awesome. man, I love so football. Was, so great. Oh, what was the transition like? So you're in college, you're at the the academy, right? Yeah. And uh, is this around the time you meet Pat, or is that a little bit later? Like when? A little uh, bit later, but a little I mean, bit later. Okay. I'll start so, with this. I'll say, football was my first love. All right, mm -hmm. I absolutely love football, but I could live it and breathe it. All right, mm -hmm. and so uh, uh, when I got out of well, my senior year. My roommate's saying, well, yeah, hey, we're, you know, we're all going to, what are we going to do when we graduate? And uh, he says, well, we're all going to be pilots. And I'm going, what's there to being a pilot? Yeah, I'd never, I didn't have any relatives, no friends, nothing. I'd never been affiliated with any type of flying mm -hmm. other than some of the ones, some of the uh, uh, incentive rides they gave us while we we're at the academy. And I felt like, yeah, I kind of felt like I was getting sick and that kind of stuff. And I'm, well, I'm not sure this is important. This is for me. 
And so uh, he goes, yeah, we're all going to be pilots. And I'm thinking, hmm. All right. So I get into pilot training and I'm down in Reese, Lubbock, Texas. Now that's where Pat's from. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I meet her in the first squadron party we have. And she's sitting around. Uh, she's in the kitchen. I go in there to get a beer. It's at the keg. She's in the, She's right there next to the keg. And I thought, hey, this is a good looking babe. You know, I thought, you know, I'll <laughs> talk to her. And so uh, we start, you know, talking and hitting it off pretty well. And then some other guy comes in, another guy from my squatter. He was supposed to be on a blind date with her, but oh, he showed no. up. He showed up late. All right. So by the time he showed up, we'd already kind of hit it off just talking yeah. and shooting the bull. And so uh, uh, we both walked her to her car when 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 she left. <laughs> I called her up the next day at nine thirty in the morning, and I got a date with her that night. He, he calls him Richard. at 10 30 and he's too late. Oh, you beat him twice. Oh yeah. Damn. <laughs> so that's that's how we met. It was at pilot training in Lubbock, Texas. That's where she's from all her life. And uh she's got friends and relatives. She went to Texas Tech, uh, yeah. even after she graduated from high school there. And uh her mother and father lived down there, her sister lived there for for there for a considered period of time. Mm -hmm. So we kept going back and forth to Lubbock, Texas throughout my career in the Air Force. So now real quick time out, uh, uh, forgive any impropriety. Pat Greenwood is pretty Foxy Richard. Okay. So uh -huh. all right. You do pretty good. Mr. Greenwood. He's pulling it. Okay. Well, you gotta pulling. know, you gotta know she's got a call sign as well. And so it's not just Gigi. All right. So she goes by the queen of theme. All right. Damn. So I can tell you in our, my gosh, it's, uh, 42 years of marriage. I got that right. In our 42 years of marriage, she has been the queen of theme, even without that title, the entire time. She, she will turn a party, a boring mm -hmm. party, into a theme party, a boring function into a theme function on the drop of a hat. She's so talented, uh, and it turns out fantastic. So when people walk away, she used to say, you know, people go to parties, they just can't hang around in the, in the kitchen or whatever else, and they walk and they get home, and they don't remember anything they did because it was just kind of, just like the last party. Yeah. Yeah. You throw a theme into it, it makes it special. Wow. And so that was her perspective. And I can tell you that for 42 years, uh, every party we had, which we had many, uh, many functions we, she put on, uh, she was in fact, deserves the title queen of theme. And I can co-sign this. Okay. So, uh, queen of theme, Richard, like, You'll go to a Christmas party at the Greenwoods house, which already seemingly has a theme, but then it's like you have to dress like a redneck or it'll be like a Super Bowl <laughs> party and everyone's dressed like Harry Potter. Like one theme isn't enough. There's like layers of theme yeah. and they'll be like, you're at a, no, it's crazy. Like you go to a, a fantasy draft party and there's mini hacky sack footballs and all the plates are shaped like footballs. And there's like a thing on the wall with like the magnets to pick your teams. Like it is inspirational. My wife now still looks to Miss G as like a source of inspiration for our parties and does an amazing job, still falls short of the mark. This yeah. shit is crazy. You're talking oh, like God. crystal goblets for a keg. Like this lady is a class act, man. It is crazy. What's the most noteworthy theme or theme? Like if there's been a, a theme that she's done more than once, what's the one that just stands out for each of you? The, the, <laughs> the, the theme party that you're like, wow, that was, that was the theme of all themes. 
there's there's too many. Too many. Too many. Okay. Really All right. I don't so, remember most of her parties uh, after I get there and take my coat off. It's they're usually it's it's a good time, man. <laughs> Greenwood parties are a good time, Richard. I love that. That's well, awesome. she's very inventive. But uh, there's the downside of that, right? So over the years, if you've moved 15 times, you carrying around all this steam stuff everywhere you go, right? <laughs> so she'll get the decorations for it all and just go all out, right? So we've got an entire room that's got boxes and, and stuff in there that are part of her theme parties, all right? So you can barely get into that room, let alone get something out in an organized fashion. So she has to dig in to find stuff. She knows exactly where it is, but she'll dig in and find stuff and pull it out, but she'll take out 15 other things to get to it. And then she's got to drag it all back in. So when you think about transitioning from uh, 4th of July mm -hmm. to uh, uh, another event or a party of that type where she's got a Western party or, or something like that, or, uh, to, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, to Christmas, to Mardi Gras, to whatever. I mean, all these things have different decorations and she's got them in that room somewhere. All right. So, uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm the one digging that shit out oh, yeah. <laughs> and I have no idea where the hell it is. So right. there's two doors to that room. Sometimes she'll go from the right. Sometimes she'll go from the left. And my God, you can't get into that. You cannot walk into that room. It's packed completely with decorations for theme parties. So uh, well, let me ask you this. When she's like, all right, I'm running short on supplies. I need to, I need to, I need to like, I need to update my, uh, my inventory. Where is she shopping? Or better question, what gives you anxiety when she's like, I'm going to this store? <laughs> <laughs> when she comes up with a new theme. Well, okay, I got it. You got to start from square one at that point. You're not repurposing you know, things. You know she's going to go out and buy shit. You know, oh, so yeah. No, and it's going to go, it's going to be everything. Now, I'll tell you this, you know, from having moved all these different times, I thought I was getting really smart, all right? So I noticed that she will decorate the house, all right? And she'll completely renovate, not renovate, but uh, remodelize every house we get into mm -hmm. or even the house we're in two or three times. If she gets tired of a color, if she gets tired of a particular theme, she'll want to change the house. And if she changes one room, then she's got to change all the other rooms. And you start going around the entire house and you've changed everything again. All right. So I got really smart after about the third or fourth time. All right. So I thought there's got to be a catalyst to all this change. And I thought it's the sofa. If she changes the colors of the sofa in the living room, she's going to want to change the color. Of the, she's going to want to paint the walls. She's going to bring in new chairs with different colors and everything else. And then after she's done that living room, now she's got to go around the entire house and, mm -hmm. and make sure it all blends in. Right. All right. So after going, after going through this three or four times, all right, uh, it's wow. the sofa. So yeah. the strategy I came up with was I love the sofa. I don't <laughs> want to ever get rid of the sofa. It's perfect. I love the colors. They're my favorite colors. Don't ever change the sofa, honey. I love the sofa. It's perfect. Well, she figured me out after about a couple of years. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I told a friend of mine because it was actually working pretty well. Yeah. And unfortunately, he told his wife and she told my wife. And by oh. the time, uh, uh. yeah, so now, yeah. Uh, so I was guilty. And, uh, you know, it didn't work anymore. So it's a shame when you share your brilliance and it comes back to bite you. Well, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. I remember going to visit uh, the Greenwoods house when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, 
they have this beautiful colonial in Woodbridge. It's got extensions and like an extra garage and a theater room over the garage and their master suites, gorgeous. And like, it's just, it's, it's right in the heart of Lake Ridge. It's beautiful. And I remember walking in and being like, man, is this, is this how some people put their house together? Like my mom did a good job, but we had like a bunch of nasty kids in the house, like sweat socks everywhere. It was a lived in ass house. And they had like a parlor and like a formal office that he's, I think, sitting in now. And like, it was like with glass doors and shit. And I was like, this is, this is aspirational. <laughs> and 15 years later, 20 years later, when I went to buy my house, I'm not kidding. My, from the front, my house is just a different color. It looks like the same fucking house. Like it's, I was like, I was like, this is great. This is this is the this is what I'm shooting for. I, I was never wondering why because that seemed you were very decisive when you saw that house. Like it I was. was, you know, and you were like, "I want to buy it. How do we make that happen?" And I was like, "Okay, well, I don't know what struck as fancy because for me it was, you know, it was a house nice. and it was nice and there was opportunity there, but I didn't I didn't know the connection there and how no uh, like dig deep down to like uh, his house and my aunt's house, like these beautiful and yeah, the Greenwoods house is just like you go in and everything. There's like fancy couches with wood scrolling and all the shit matches and there's stuff on the walls and it's like looks legit everywhere and i was like okay i'm gonna start with this and i want to see if i can fill that space well part so of that was always aspirational for me part of that is a result of having moved around as much as we have because we've seen mm -hmm. some really really nice houses all right mm -hmm. and we've lived overseas you know i made it a point uh pat and i made it a point uh while i was in the military that we never really wanted to live on base you know because the base housing was standard base housing we wanted to live on the economy. Uh, we wanted to visit. We wanted to understand the culture, everything else associated with the place we're living in, and that was fantastic. You know, so of all the places we've lived in, or in all the places we lived in, there's always that different culture, the different houses, and everything else. We would rent on the economy, uh, and we would see different things that we really liked. All right, so there's good and bad about that. It means you know, somewhere, some point, Pat's going to want to buy it. You know, so uh, but when it's all said and done, you know. I'm not sure we could actually uh, find an entire dream house, but uh, we lived in so many neat houses that we took pieces and parts of those houses that we liked, the things we liked, and tried to put them into a house uh, in any house that we live in. And so, uh, you know, within within financial means anyway. Right. And so, uh, but we've lived in some really nice houses, particularly overseas. And I would say when we lived in Spain, we had a gorgeous house. It was overlooked. It was on a edge of a cliff we could overlook the entire town of uh, Alcala uh, just uh, just to the uh, uh, just outside of uh, Madrid and then uh, a small town and then uh, when we lived in Italy my gosh we lived at the base of the Dolomite Mountains they're huge they go 4,000 feet up oh, and wow. uh, we're on near the base in one little tiny town and uh, we had a gorgeous house we rented uh, now typically when you're when you're overseas and you're American you know, there's opportunity for the locals to get you to pay for their house. All right. So whatever <laughs> Uncle Sam will pay for and, and additional money out of your own pocket, you know, they'll charge you out the kazoo to be able to live in those houses. Mm -hmm. But it's finding the right house. It's important. Since we moved so many times, we kept collecting and getting more and more junk. All right. So you, uh, Peyton, you've seen our house with all the junk in it. You know, but of course, they're all nice things. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I look at it as uh <laughs> I wouldn't call it all junk, but we have a lot of stuff. All right. A lot of stuff. And yeah. you're going to look, it's very difficult to find an empty spot in our house with no stuff in it. All right. Uh, That's fair. Because we've collected it forever. Uh, and so, but 
when we go when we went overseas, we would find places in Italy. We lived at a gorgeous house, uh, had two floors. I mean, it was probably about almost six thousand square feet. It was a base of Dolomites. You had four very large eight foot uh, doors that would open up on out towards the mountain, and then mm-hmm. on the opposite side, opposite side of that big great room, you had four more that would open up on the other side. So you had a huge party room that people could walk in and out. Then you had a veranda that went around the entire house. And so we had two kitchens in the house. Uh, uh, It was just absolutely fabulous. So we could never repeat that house anywhere, all right, in the United States. But again, you take pieces and parts of that and uh, things that you did and you try and incorporate that into the houses that you live in and uh, and so forth. Now for this house, uh, you know, I got an engineering degree at the Air Force Academy. I never used it. I was a pilot. I could have been a history major, you know, and been a pilot. All right. But when it came down to it, you know, I can draw stuff and I can figure out stuff and I can engineer stuff. I'm Mr. Fix it around the house. I can fix just about anything. If you look at YouTube now, you'll figure out how to do stuff and you can yeah. repeat it just like that. All right. So uh, when we looked at this house and we started thinking about adding on to the house because it wasn't big enough to get all our junk in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat wanted some things. I wanted some things. And then you get into this little stuff, you know, where, Hey, mm-hmm. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. And so I thought, okay, let me be smart about this. Why don't you make a list of what you want and I'll make a list of what I want and I'll figure out how to design mm-hmm. all that stuff in there in our addition to the house. And that worked perfectly. That's 42 years of marriage right there. Yeah, that is. yeah. Yeah. Compromise. That's a pro tip right there. Yeah. So I learned I, I'm a quick learner. Yeah. Right? So, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, that's how we did a lot of the stuff we did here. So I designed it and the engineer actually took it and got used my, uh, my design as well as, I mean, I went down to the inch, uh, oh, yeah drawing a 3d type uh image of different rooms and so forth uh and he took all that and got uh got all the authorizations and whatnot and he added it in so uh when i got out of it i got my study and i got a third garage you know that was a big thing for me you know so pat wanted a bigger bedroom she wanted a bigger living room uh and she wanted a great room uh with uh you know a t- potential tv set up there and so forth and so uh it worked out that way and, and uh that's the thing that stood out to me about the house is the authenticity of it yeah uh and it's never to bash anybody else's you know you never want to yuck anybody's yum but a lot of the design elements we see in our line of work as agents is like they're gorgeous homes and may they might be palatial but they're full of like the same live love laugh <laughs> stuff you get at tj maxx right it's all the same like jesus lives here and it's yeah. all beautiful stuff it's beautiful <laughs> deep shit. But you go in there and they have like a bronze eagle statue greeting you that they got somewhere and like some shit from Italy that's like a legitimate statue they bought on a Sunday weekend trip to Naples. I don't know, but everything has like a story, whether they remember it or not, there's an authenticity that goes bone deep in the house. And I always appreciated that. It doesn't have a nouveau riche feel. It has more of the feel of like a family home that's been 15 different places and, and has some stories to tell. And I always found that very comforting. Uh, and they're gigantic. It was like the first TV room I was allowed to play Xbox in when I was younger. And they had like a projector on the wall and a sectional and uh, like a hundred foot or hundred inch screen and a pool table and a Coke machine. And I was like, this is the life, man. I'm yeah. this, is, this is the dream. I'm going to shoot for this. 
so there was it was it continued again and i don't know if i've said this out to to mr greenwood before but it was very aspirational for me from a young age like i don't know if i'm gonna fly fighter jets to do this but this is the this is the bullseye i want to try and hit this is the gold standard right here yes like hometown feeling and it's just i've always loved it and admired them both so you talk to your buddies you're gonna be a pilot you'd make this decision as a group what what drove you to finally make that decision uh you know it was like hey what what are we what are we all gonna do yeah uh what else am i gonna do you know so i thought okay what's there to being a pilot we all talked about it and I thought, okay kind of sounds cool uh i really didn't know everything about the fighter pilot community or the flying community until i got to pilot training and, and i was at reese in lubbock texas and so you had two different airplanes you had to fly, a T-37 and a T-38. T-37 uh, was a side-by-side -side seating, so you sat next to the instructor. Mm -hmm. And then the T-38 was front-back seating, where you're in the front, instructor's in the back. Or you're out there flying solo by yourself without the instructor. And so uh, I didn't really enjoy the T-37 as much, and my instructor was kind of an ass. And so, uh, uh, but I was also dating Pat at the mm -hmm. time, and uh, and... I had made a mistake when I first got there. There was 11 tests that you're going to take in pilot training. And so the first test, I didn't study hard enough, and I failed it. All right. So you can fail, uh, like you can fail three tests, and then you're washed out. All right. So I failed the first test. I go into the second test, and I miss Mark Sense five questions in a row, and I failed the test. Oh, all right. Shit. So I failed the first two tests in pilot training. And I thought, holy shit, all my friends thought, all right, I'm going to get washed out. There's no way he's going to make it. So I studied my ass off for the next year while I was dating Pat. Uh, she became kind of second fiddle because I had to study. Uh, I can tell you that if there was anybody wanting to cheat mm -hmm. on a test, they were going to sit next to me because no. I knew my shit. I studied my ass off for every test. I maxed out the test, the rest of the test for the, wow. for the year to be able to graduate. And so, uh, but in that whole process, I also started enjoying, once I got into T-38, I really enjoyed the T-38. I had a better instructor there. Uh, and of course, the camaraderie of all the folks in your class, uh, that kind of thing was a lot of fun. Uh, I got a fighter out of there. And, and so I went, they sent me to fighter lead in down at Holloman Air Force Base in, in uh, New Mexico. And so in the T-38 was a lot more fun. It was a supersonic trainer. All right, so you can go really fast, and a lot of times I could go solo, so being by myself, flying by myself, going super fast, going out to fly and do whatever I want was a lot of fun. But then I got to Holloman, and they were pretty rigid, but it was all about fighter, you know, getting into fighters. So I got an F-111 uh, out of pilot training, a very fast fighter. He had a swing wing. It would be up here about 26 degrees to take off, and they would go back to 72 degrees back behind you when you wanted to go supersonic. And so, uh, but you really only flew a lot of low-level stuff. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get into that first. I had to go to uh, Holloman. So I got into Holloman, and I loved the com. I loved the camaraderie, but I loved the competition. So it was just like playing football. Uh, it was a sport. Uh, you were competing against everybody in that class. I mean, your buddies. You're competing against them. You're competing against instructors. Uh, in the aircraft and outside the aircraft, you had other things you did in the squadron where you were still competing in some way, shape or fashion. So I love the competition part. And so when I look at uh, my loves, my first love was football, my second loves became fighters. Mm -hmm. And uh, flying fighters, the competition associated with that was very much like sports. 
I was a competitor. I wanted to win, wanted to be the best. And that's the intent behind fighter training and, and getting into a fighter. You're always competing to be the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly you're a team player, but it's like a sport that that mentality is still there. And so, uh, that's why that's where I really loved became uh, you know I'm sorry started loving fighters, and uh, the whole community. Uh, again, it was uh, it was much like playing sports. The uh, so what was your other question on that? Oh no, just kind of how you got into piloting and, and what that journey was like for you. So once you started flying like fighter jets and they started moving you around was I, I don't know you know you already know me my dad owns a flower shop and i'm a realtor i'm about as far from the military as you can get um what was that like did you you know without getting into the nitty-gritty of it were you in defensive positions like how does that fu- function what's the life of a pilot like you go and you fly around and play tag all day or you do paperwork what's that like on a nine to five uh you have to learn the airplane and you have to be the best at the airplane so you have to employ the airplane so you think about an airline pilot or something like that or a guy who's flying a Cessna, he flies from point A to point B. That's a boring flight. Mm-hmm. You're going to plan it. You're going to check your weather. You're going to check that kind of stuff. You're going to take off, and you're going to fly from point A to point B, and you're going to land. Mm-hmm. That's the simplistic part of flying. Uh, when you fly a fighter, uh, you're not just taking off and landing. You're employing the airplane, the capabilities of the airplane, mm-hmm. in between the takeoff and land. Mm-hmm. The employment part is the challenging piece. The employment part is where you compete. Uh, you want to be the best air-to-air pilot. You're flying against other aircraft. You're competing against those other aircraft. Mm-hmm. You want to be the best air-to-ground pilot. You want to drop your bombs on a training facility and be the best at dropping bombs. Uh, you know, So you brief, you go out and you fly, you come back and you debrief, and it's all about the competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about getting better at employing the aircraft. All right, so that's that's the mission side and the flying piece. Uh, the personal piece is no matter where you move, you've got a ready-made social system set up for you. And so, you know, Pat would tell you this as well. We moved multiple different times, and every time we would move to a different location, uh, you'd have families, spouses, uh, personnel taking care of a meeting, coming to meet us. Mm-hmm. and introducing themselves and you're part of a social arena or social setting from the very get-go so you're never by yourself all right so you're not just out there doing it on your own just with you and your family uh you're with the other folks in the squadron their families uh they have spouses and kids and everything else and you grow up in that community uh and uh and they take care of you to a large extent if something goes wrong all right so uh that's that was the nicest part or the best part I got out of being in the military or being in a fighter community was uh, the camaraderie that you build uh, the, with not just the pilots you fly, but also with the families uh, and, and their kids and people taking care of you uh, and, and so forth. So uh, that was the driving factor. So for someone like me who I would categorize myself as I know nothing about planes or, you know, fighting other planes in the air uh, or things on the ground. Can you tell us a little bit about the different planes you flew or learned on and how they were different from one another? Uh, Cause you know, I think most people are like F-18 or F-22 and then that's the extent, unless it's a commercial airliner and they know what a 757 is. But like beyond that, not a lot of understanding. So for our listeners and watchers, 
can you give us a little bit of a like super beginner crash course into what you flew and how that was different from some of the other things they flew and and all those details in between okay all right so uh t-37s and t-38s were in pilot training those were trainer airplanes okay and you were basically learning how to fly and you were competing with your other classmates to get the best jets or the best aircraft out of that pilot training class mm -hmm. so you're either going to be instructor qualified or fighter qualified or, or not mm -hmm. and so I was fighter qualified, so I was able to get into a fighter. So you have to be in the top 10% of your class to be able to get that. So it's a competition in the class to do that. Oh, wow. Right. So your best pilots are the guys that are going to go fly those kind of aircraft. Uh, to so, start so when you failed those first two tests in class, people are like writing you off. He's not going to be in oh, yeah. the top 10%. Oh, so, yeah. Okay, got it. So this is making a little bit more oh, sense. Yeah. By the way, Joe Montana, who we got the real comeback kid here. I like right? story. <laughs> Not in a row, man. That's crazy. Yeah, that's the only thing I know about flight, like I understand the concept of lift, and I know there's <laughs> flaps involved. Like I don't know. Raise the flaps. That's really that's all I've got when it comes to piloting. <laughs> I assume. Sorry, I interrupted you though. But continue. Oh, well. No, yeah, you got to have an engine in that thing to get. You know, you can make anything fly if you have a big enough engine. Oh, rubber band and a propeller. I may used to make those yeah. on Easter oh, Sunday. You can get those to fly too. They just won't hold us up in the air very long. Uh, yeah, exactly. Pay. Yeah. So uh, I started out in that pilot training. So I got an. I wasn't sure what I wanted out of pilot training. But I, I started gaming the system thinking, hey, I didn't know anything about the Air Force. I didn't know anything about fighter airplanes. I didn't have any of that until later on. All right. So uh, I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew, OK, I want I was fighter qualified. I want to get a fighter. And I started looking. I wasn't the number one guy in the class, but I was up there. So I'm going, well, OK, if I pick, there might only be one F-16 or one F-15 for the entire class. If I choose that as my first choice, I'm probably not going to get it. Mm -hmm. So what might somebody not choose that looks pretty cool? And so uh, I looked at an F-111. There were three F-111s that we were going to get. And I mentioned that, you know, it's it's an older airplane, but it'll fly like 1.3 Mach, you know, times the speed of sound. And it flies low altitude, 100 feet off the ground, train following radar. And so uh, I'm thinking, that sounds really cool. You know, I can go fast. Uh, you know, if I put that in there, I don't hear anybody saying they're going to put that in as number one choice. So I put that as my number one choice. Well, when I got it, uh, I found out I was going to Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico. And so I really wanted to go to England. And the other part about putting them as my number one was my stepfather was from England and I had never been to England. So I really wanted to go to England. And so I thought F-111s, they all go to England. Well, there were two bases in England that had F-111s, two bases in the States that had F-111s. And so I thought for sure I'd be going to England when I put in for F-111s. Well, they gave me Cannon, Clovis, New Mexico. It was 110 miles away from Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and I thought, shoot. So somewhere in there, I decided I loved Pat, and we decided to get married. Uh, All right. okay. so somewhere in there, I mean, that didn't have anything to do with it. Right. After you were done studying. <laughs> after I didn't get to go to England, I'm in Lubbock, I'm in Clovis. I must love this girl. No, uh, I'm teasing. So, uh, But anyway... When I got in the F-111, uh, it was not everything I expected it to be. It was a very fast airplane, but it was pretty dangerous. All right. Uh, the first month I was there, there was a guy, two people that were killed on final. The airplane had some malfunctions, and they didn't make the runway, and they crashed, and, and uh, they died. Wow. And so, you know, there's reality sets real. in yeah. uh, with uh, different airplanes. And so the F-111 was an older-type airplane, but it had a lot of problems, maintenance-related maintenance related. Uh, you had to work the airplane two or three hours to get it to fly and maybe work it two or three hours after it landed. All right. So you're as the pilot, you're there helping them work the airplane to make sure things are uh, 
working before you take off. And then yeah. when you land, you're there two or three hours with maintenance, maybe swapping out different boxes and stuff to keep, get the airplane ready for the next guy you'll fly. Yeah, no, right. So that was the F-111, but it was a very fast airplane. And it did do TFR, you know, train following radar. Oh, and Richard, so, just, uh, I did some quick head math. At the speed he was sighting, his distance from uh, Cannon to Lubbock, he could have covered in about four and a half minutes. He was <laughs> going... He was going 1,200, what, 1,150 miles an hour, 110 uh, miles. He covered so about five minutes. <laughs> the fastest I've the fastest I've been, uh, now in the F-111, was I was flying in Nellis Range, or uh, out there in, in uh, Nevada, yeah, uh, Northern Ranges, and we're letting down, and we're going to TFR. We're 200 feet, and we're going 1.3 Mach at night. All right, so you can't see the terrain. You're just believing in the instruments and everything else that they're all, everything's working. All right. Yeah. So it's a two seat airplane pilots on the, if you look at me, pilots on the left and their weapon systems operators on the right. Mm -hmm. So he trusts you that you're not going to kill him for one, but he's in the radar and everything else while you're in other instruments to make sure that hey, when you're all talking, when you're down there that low and you're going that fast, uh, that you're not going to hit the ground. All right. So I've had friends that did hit the ground. Uh, where the system failed and they didn't catch it. Uh, and obviously things didn't turn out well. Uh, and so the best friend of my wedding had a problem with an F-111. Uh, and so he didn't make it either. And so, uh, I mean, it was my best man. So you look at that. I was in there for four and a half years in the F-111. And once I got into the F-111, after about the first year, I realized this isn't the airplane I really wanted. Mm -hmm. wow. All right. It does cool things, and I want to be the best at it, but it's not really the airplane I really wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I started aspiring to do other things to, take, to get another airplane, and the F-16 was the one that I really wanted. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, four and a half years later, I, got an, I had to take an assignment to go to the Pentagon to potentially get out of the F-111 and then change airplanes. Mm -hmm. And so it was a special assignment. I had to apply for it. I ended up getting it. So Pat and I, uh, with John Eric, uh, came here to uh, to Washington D.C. to the Pentagon for the first time. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon assignment turned out really well. I got an F-16 out of the Pentagon assignment, and but I had to sell my soul, so I went to Korea for a year remote without the family. All right. Oh no. So, uh, uh, but then I got in the F-16, and so the F-16 was just different. It was yeah. a single seat versus two people, super maneuverable, the most maneuverable aircraft we had in the inventory at the time. And uh, it was super fast, but it was all organized better than the F-111 mm -hmm. was in that one pilot could do all the things the F-111 did with the exception of carry as many bombs and everything else the F-111 could. All right. So uh, it was a smaller airplane, and it flew air-to-air -air versus just air-to-air -to ground. So the mm -hmm. F-111 was purely drop bombs type, air-to-ground type uh, employment. Mm -hmm. The F-16 was you're flying against other aircraft and you're dropping bombs. So now you had to be the best at both. Wow. All right. Wow. So that was the additional challenge of the F-16 over an airplane only does air to ground. So there's other air to ground airplanes like an A-10, you mm -hmm. know, it flies pretty slow. It's not supersonic, but it does a pretty good job at air to ground. Yeah. Uh, and it has a big gun. It can carry a lot of bombs, but it doesn't fly air to air. All right. Okay. So again, I think uh, the challenge from that, from going on F-111 to F-16, I fell in love with the F-16. And so uh, I had about a thousand hours in the F-111D. Uh, I ended up with uh, about 26, 2700 hours in the F-16. Uh, and so 
within there, you, you start out as a basic pilot. Uh, you get to be a two-ship flight lead, whether it be the F-111 or the F-16, any fighter. Then you get maybe a four-ship flight lead, and then you get to be an instructor. All right, so there's different qualifications you aspire to and you compete to get mm -hmm. uh, during your career that always makes it challenging. You know, So you're concerned about the only airplane you're flying first as a, as a basic pilot, but then now you're two ships, and now you're thinking about how to employ your aircraft and his effectively, or the next, your, your uh, wingman. And then when you get to be a four ship, now you think about how to employ all four at the same time, oh, wow. effectively. And once oh, you get to be wow. an instructor, how do you train guys to be number one, number two, number three, number four, or maybe up to eight airplanes, you know, or sixteen airplanes? All right, so that's the piece and the challenge. It's always one, always one more step in a fighter community where you're always being more or challenged to be more uh, effective or uh, to be a, a stronger pilot than you were last year or the year before. So where did, you, where did you end up in that? Uh, I was an instructor in both the F-111D and the F-16. Oh, wow. And so when uh, the other part of that is you also get to be an evaluator. All right. So there's a thing called standardization evaluation in a, in a standard fighter squadron. And uh, so I've been a standard, standardization evaluation officer before. You run the program. But do you give guys evaluations? Uh, how good of an instructor are you? You're, you're evaluating, I'm sorry, evaluating an instructor or you're evaluating a, a pilot on their ability to fly and employ the aircraft. All right, so that to me, I think uh, as a squadron commander uh, was one of the best things, the biggest challenges was to be the evaluator uh, on top of just being a squadron commander or a flight lead or instructor, or flight lead, basic pilot. Uh, one thing that I really liked uh, culture-wise in the Air Force was, you know, I, I kind of compare it to the Army and maybe other services in this regard, but, uh, you know, it's a kind of a foxhole mentality. And I think from the Army standpoint, uh, you're asked to do something, you're told to do something, and they say go, you need to go. And maybe everybody's lives depend mm -hmm. on you going at the same time as everybody else. All right. Uh, so you don't question the directive to go. All right. In the Air Force, and it's all based on rank. All right. Mm -hmm. So the senior guy is going to be the guy in charge. That's just the way it is. You're a senior guy. You're the guy's in charge. You're going to make decisions. You're, everybody's going to follow you. You're the leader. You may not be qualified very well. All right. So in the Air Force, it's a different culture. You could be the wing commander, a full colonel, or a general officer, and you come down to the squadron to fly. How current are you? Are you an instructor? Are you a flight lead? Maybe you're a wingman, and you mm -hmm. have a a second lieutenant as the instructor or the flight lead, and you're on his wing. He's briefing. He's telling you what you're oh. going to do. He's debriefing everything, but you're a wingman on his wing, regardless of your rank. So it's all about your employment of the aircraft capability uh, from a fighter community. You have to be the Not about the rank. Now, so when you go to war, you don't see general officers leading massive amounts of airplanes because they're not qualified and current. All right, who's the most qualified and current guy? It may be a lieutenant, maybe a second lieutenant, maybe a first lieutenant, maybe a captain. Whoever's the most qualified leads. Everybody else follows from an air standpoint. And when you get back in the broom and debrief, he's leading the debrief and he's telling you what you did wrong, regardless of your rank. When you walk out the room after the debrief, you pin back on your general officer yeah. uh, star, your, your position and everything else. Uh, but while you're flying, 
he's in charge. He's the leader. Uh, has nothing to do with rank. Has everything to do with qualifications and capability. Well, it's all in deference to the mission objective. It sounds like. Well, for Richard yeah. and for our audience, he keeps throwing out plane models. And just to clarify, the F-16, like when you were a little kid and you had your your like Hot Wheels jet, that's yeah. like one of the Hot Wheels jets that was your favorite. <laughs> that's yeah. like the cool looking one. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like this little Hot Wheels right here. Yeah, there like, it is. Like it's they're like that's the cool fighter jet you wanted to when you were a yeah. kid and you were flying a, a refrigerator box. Okay, this is a legit one from that. Oh. So this is a great airplane. So we've got just about ten minutes left, and I really wanted to hear a couple of your highlight stories. Like I know um this is all amazing but like i know you've got your 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 story i know i've heard more uh, at least once about you using the fighter jet i know you tested the night vision goggles i know you've got some uh some stunt flying to talk about like hit us with a couple of quick highlights before we have to let you go okay one i'll hit with the all right so i told you I, uh you're always competing right so mm -hmm. i knew i wanted to get an f-16 i got the f-16 after i was in the f-16 for a period of time i started started applying for the air force thunderbirds all right, so they're the Air Force's demonstration team. You have Blue Angels that do it for the Navy. Mm -hmm. We call them the Navy swim team. Uh, <laughs> and we have the Air Force Thunderbirds that uh, fly for the Air Force. And so uh, I thought I had to get that in there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when it comes down to it, you know, you've got an airplane that looks like this. All right, mm -hmm. so it's a red, white, and blue airplane. Uh, but it's a little bigger than this. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, but you're going to do demonstrations, and you're going to fly all over the place and do demonstrations for two years, a two-year assignment. So, you know, applying to get into that and everything else, I'd apply for two or three years. Best I got was, hey, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we'll take a look at your stuff. And, you know, you don't get you don't even get out to go uh, compete or potentially apply uh, during the process. So the last time I applied, they uh, gave me an invite to come out to Nellis and, uh, you know, meet with the guys. You go through a whole uh, uh, a selection process. And so. Uh, Somehow or another, I passed the selection process and they selected me on the team. And so uh, here I am coming on and there's like different positions. You know, you're either flying, you got a lead here with a number two and a number four on the other side. And there's a guy in a slot. They're called the diamond. And then you have two solos. All right. So which is, in my view, the funnest, the most fun positions. Mm -hmm. So I got picked to be a solo. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is awesome. this is one of the most awesome things I could get. And so uh, uh, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, but the first thing you realize is that, hey, you know, you got to be the best you can be in the airplane. You're, ne you're never going to do every maneuver exactly right, but you're always going to constantly try to do it right. Uh, you're going to train, 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 train to do it right every time. Uh, with the life of the, or that particular, I'm sorry, particular position, you did things as a solo, and sometimes you do things together where you fly right by each other mm -hmm. or fly upside down. Uh, one guy's upside down. Oof, get back on the camera. One guy's upside down, the other guy's right side up, like this. Oh, that's so true. Uh, or that's you, uh, uh, or you'd go in with the diamond, and you'd be a six ship, and you're all flying two or three feet apart from each other, going 500 miles per hour. <laughs> right. So you do close fingertip, you know, with uh, the diamond, all six airplanes, and so uh, that was a challenge. You had to finesse. You had to be really good at flying formation and finessing to keep from tapping wings with the other guys. Yeah. Uh, at some point when you're flying that fast uh, and then you had the two the uh, different set where you split apart and you do solo maneuvers either individual solo maneuvers or you do it with opposing passes with the other other solo so that was probably the most one of the most fun assignments i had but it was also the challenging one you're really a uh 
uh, you're basically showing off the capabilities of aircraft and what yeah. the Air Force does, but you're also representing the entire Air Force, not just the fighter pilot community, to the rest of the American public and to foreigners, you know, when you go overseas and so forth. So uh, uh, that, in my mind, was the ultimate team yeah. uh, that I got to be a part of and, uh, you know, contribute to. And so, That's you know, when I, when I look at that, I go, okay, uh, you may sign a thousand, maybe uh, 65,000 autographs in two years that you're on the team and you're traveling to every single state in the U.S. maybe once, more than once, and you're doing some overseas uh, uh, locations as well. And you may have anywhere from a million to 200, you know, a million to two million people out there at an air show. Uh, and so if you do your job right, and you take your uniform off, your show suit, and you give it to the janitor, you want most of those 65,000 people walking by you to get his autograph, all right? Yeah. So that was a critical piece is you're not just representing and flying for yourself, you're, you're representing the entire Air Force. Uh, there's a responsibility associated with that. Uh, and so uh, you have to abide by that and, and make sure that your personal conduct, everything you do is representative of all the different airmen we've got. You know, you got, uh, shoot, I'd say uh, 400,000 uh, airmen, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Air Force guys, mm -hmm. Air Force people, uh, folks in the Air Force uh, with different, you've got active duty, you've got guard, yeah. reserve. And from a technical standpoint, you're making a transformer tap dance. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got this giant super powered machine and you have to, dance ballet close enough to kiss the guy next door to you. That's God, that's gotta be an incredible. Yeah, so you're that, you're that close and you got to stay that close when you're in close formation. And again, you might be in an upside down maneuver like this. One of the maneuvers we did as a solo where you're, you're upside, yeah. you're upside down like this flying. Uh, and so you're also around all those people that are at the air show. So there's a safety aspect of that right. really important as well. And a mistake so. is like a fit, a, a blink of an eye and you're, you're on the ground, right? I mean, it's yeah. you're at that speed, yeah. there are no mistakes. Like you've got to be incredibly right. careful. So you practice, you practice, you train, you train, you train. And you ask, well, hey, what do you do in the Air Force? You train your entire career yeah. to be the best fighter pilot, to employ the aircraft, aircraft. or to be, in this case, uh, the best demonstration pilot uh, representing the Air Force and so forth. Uh, it's training, constant training, constant training. And uh, and you got to push for perfection. I mean, you you know that you'll never always be the best, but you got to try to be the best. And so uh, that's the challenge. And uh, particularly going from one airplane to the next, they're all have different capabilities. And so uh, sometimes the aircraft are so much more technically capable that you're flying a lower capable aircraft. You're never going to win. Mm -hmm. All right. But sometimes you can't. All right. And so. That's the piece, and I, I was fortunate enough to get into the F-16, and I thought it was probably one of the most capable aircraft in the Air Force. Uh, and you know, we sell aircraft worldwide, or the United States does, and so uh, uh, you have tons of different countries out there that have F-16s as well. And so when you go overseas, you know, we've lived in Spain, we've lived in uh, uh, Italy, we've lived in Germany, I've lived in Korea. Uh, and uh, you've got uh, other aircraft that are out there in other countries that have their aircraft. And uh, you're flying one of the highest, one of the hottest little sports cars. Uh, yeah. You might as well call it a rocket. 
and you're yeah. on top with you're on sitting on top of the rocket, Rattling the rocket going a thousand controls. miles an hour with and bombs so, uh, your balls. Your F-16 <laughs> goes the F-16 will go as fast as the F-11 did, but it just Ooh. does ten times more. All right, oh so that God. was that was the fun part. What a well, thrill. I know I know we're like running running short on time, and I think there's definitely going to be a uh, part two. Uh, yeah, if, you can come on again. Come back, I want to hear some more of these stories, but kind of the takeaway, just because it's been in the news recently, like as a as a big thing. I so it's a two part question. Where were you in your career when the first Top Gun came out, and how do you feel about the most recent movie and the Top Gun movies as an actual fighter pilot? Closes out on that. All right. So first off, I'm a Top Gun fan. All right. All right. So, uh, but when it's all said and done, there's there's a lot more information or detailed information behind that. You know, they call a movie Top Gun. It's because the Navy Spider Weapon School is called Top Gun. Hmm. All right. The Air Force has a weapon school as well. We don't call it Top Gun. We call it Fighter Weapon School. Hmm. All right. So they're both the same kind where you have the top guys from the Air Force or the top guys from the Navy, and they're competing to be the best. It's a training program to teach them to be the best and most capable pilots in their particular aircraft. And so uh, Top Gun came out the first time. <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of Hollywood involved in that. All right. Uh, the concepts were good. All right. So when you say, hey, I won't leave my wingman. All right. It means, yeah, you don't want to leave your wingman. You're not going to let him get out there and get killed. You're going to employ as a two ship to keep him from getting killed or to, uh, to destroy a target of some type uh, that you're out there with. Uh, and so you saw that as one of the concepts going to the bar, the bar scene in the first one, you know, was somewhat realistic. All right. So <laughs> you may not have guys singing songs, but they're probably singing other songs and there's some pretty, pretty nasty songs out there. All right. Yeah. So I've been a part of a lot of those. The, now, uh, did you play as much glistening beach volleyball as they make us? That's what I want to know. No. Okay. okay. Well, a little bit though. A little bit of a little yeah. bit of, of muscle. No, but ball. you may do you may do other things like uh you know, foosball. It's okay. a four man foosball is a four on four. You got a four v four. One person with each hand on the other side, on one side, I'm uh, sorry, four people, one with each each controller, right. four on the other side. It's four v four. You're competing. So uh there's that when I first got a fighter lead in, that was absolutely a blast. Yeah, that's and, uh, and everybody's around and you're making a you're making a no look shot. And you flick your wrist and the ball goes in there. Everybody's just, ah, everybody goes freaking crazy. You know, so uh, I was very good at foosball. So it was uh, it was my first introduction to some of the stuff you do as a fighter pilot. There you go. But, uh, the other part might have been, uh, uh, oh, singing songs at the bar. Uh, you know, you may, there's lots of dirty songs out there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you learn them all. When I was in Korea, uh we had a part of our squadron. We had a, we were called the Juvats. All right. So, uh, eighth fighter squadron, uh, Juvats. And so we had a mascot and then, uh, I won't get into the mascot piece, but when the, you had, uh, 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 losing my train of thought. Uh, you're in Korea. You're a Juvat. Songs. You'd sing yeah. songs. And so we had the Juvat boys choir. All right. Oh, so, you had to become part of the Juvat Boys Choir. If you had any voice at all. Yeah. Right? And even if you didn't, you had to be part of the Juvat Boys Choir. And we would get up eight to 10 of us and we would sing these dirty songs. And so we would sing them at all the different uh, dining ends, the dining house, all the different, you know, formal settings and whatnot. And uh, it would actually sounded pretty damn good, except for the words. <laughs> they weren't the greatest. <laughs> so uh, they have stuff like that. They have. Uh, uh, so the camaraderie is. The camaraderie. Is and yeah. being a badass who likes to go fast and 
be the best is definitely seems like it's a yeah, you go there's a part of going to the bar on a friday night yeah. right so that's the when you think about top gun the bar scene the kinds of things that go on in the bar those are the kinds of things that really go on uh and so there's a whole camaraderie associated with that there's a game called crud and uh correct me if i'm wrong peyton i don't know if you've ever played the game of crud here but i taught ryan and john eric how to play crud when they were little kids and so uh, they all know how to play the game of crud it's a pool okay. table without the pool cues you only have two balls one is the uh, white ball the other one's the object ball and you throw basically roll the ball to get one moving and the next guy has to grab the white ball run to one end of the table or the other and try and hit that ball that's moving into a pocket holy shit we have played crud and your <laughs> son has beat me at every bar game i've ever fucking played with him for 20 goddamn years it's every game darts well trained school, he, he trained his whole career in the air force and then he trained them boys at home so they could come Dark in shooters, my friend Oh, do not play beer pong with the Greenwoods. They will oh. crush, crush. Yeah, well, so yeah. so crud, crud was one of the better games. And so, but you would play it not just one-on-one, -on -one, not just two-on-two, -two, but you'd play four-on-four -four and you'd have squadrons competing against each other. Now, I'll tell you that when I was at Luke Air Force Base as squadron commander, we had an entire wing scrub tournament, wing uh, crud tournament, guys and girls. So Miss Pat, Gigi, queen of mm -hmm. theme, was the lead i was a squadron commander so i was the lead for our squadron team she was the lead for the women's team and they had their own outfits they had practiced crud uh and uh and they won they won the women's competition as well so oh uh it was a squadron there were nine there were 10 squadrons there we were competing all the time with the other squadrons and uh, we both won our uh, our crud tournaments uh and she uh she her call sign at the time was uh i'll share this with you all right so qb all right you think oh quarterback right right it actually stood for queen bitch all right okay. so okay just yeah, among all the girls and everything all the women uh, they just just absolutely had fun and uh it's a huge event and they have it like twice a year and so uh uh it's again it's all around crud and it's that's one of the fighter pilot what a people. tremendous community well mr greenwood we are up on time but i gotta tell you this has not been a disappointment. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your life. Again, we would love to have you on sometime in the, later in the winter or the spring to share some more stories. I know you've got a ton, and we could do another full hour on that. I, yeah. I'm very excited you about it. You definitely left me wanting more because I know there's stuff we didn't even get to. So, Dude, the night vision exciting. thing, the behind enemy lines guy, the using a fighter jet as his personal conveyance. There's so <laughs> much cool shit, and that's well, not even telling you. If we get on again, now. remind me of uh to tell the story about piddle packs piddle packs enough said, okay. enough said. Right. Piddle that's, packs. A that's a teaser there we go part well, two this is we're gonna actually label this episode part one because we're already gonna yeah. have a part two so i love awesome. it thank you it's so very much nice to meet you we will talk all right guys richard appreciate it Peyton, as always uh oh, a pleasure, thanks sir. for inviting me guys i really appreciate it of course so i love your wife nice to meet you mr greenwood God, such a cool guy. I told you he was cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool Outstanding. So cool I'm stuff. over here just going like, I've done nothing with my life. I know. Like, I, <laughs> I've done I have no yeah. cool stories like that. So. And Wright slid into the perfect podcast uh, title because right as the end, he goes, yeah, always pushing for perfection. And that's the podcast title, Pushing John, for Perfection. Pushing for uh, perfection. Because it's definitive. Every, he kept recurring. And this is, I, I will not, this is, I didn't get a chance to say this, 
uh, I won't leave him in a room alone with my wife. She will not stop watching Top Gun Maverick. And she she looks at him with an aspirational eye that I approached his Bronze Eagle earlier. I cannot. Okay. Like Mr. Greenwood's like a distinguished gentleman at this point. I met him at like 40 when he was still crushing and I would not introduce him to my girlfriends. So the dude is awesome. Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, we're super lucky that we got him on. I'm glad because I normally bring, you know, normally a lot of the folks I have a relationship with prior to, and this is, I had never met Mr. Greenwood. So he's amazing. All right. Beep, 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 beep. Now our guns thing feels really dumb. He dropped. Yeah, we should stop. We're, I think we're this is the last one. We're gonna kill that. We're gonna find something else to close out on. All, All right, right guys. Take, Take care, care. buddy.